morning, everyone. This morning, I want you to take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark. As those of you who have been attending here know, we, we study the Bible. We open up God's Word. We believe that all of God's Word is profitable and valuable, and we place a big emphasis on just reading right through the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to raise your hand. We'll give you one. We'll loan you one. Please take the Bible. As I've often said, doesn't matter what color your Bible is as long as it's red. R-E-A-D, okay? And I really do believe that Christians are called to read their Bibles. You cannot just come to church and listen to a sermon. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Most of us do not forget to eat for too long. Maybe a meal, maybe a couple meals, but we don't usually go days without eating because we were, quote, too busy but yet it's very easy to neglect our time in the Word of God because we're not going to die on the spot because we didn't read the Bible. But it's to our own spiritual pearl that we don't regularly learn how to read the Bible and to let the Holy Spirit feed us, comfort us, encourage us, convict us. Your relationship with Jesus, my relationship with Jesus, is tied to my intake of the Word of God. So with that in mind, we're starting the Gospel of Mark today, and some of you, as you remember, we just finished Genesis, know that whenever we start a new book of the Bible, it's always my passion that you learn how to read the Bible, and so I often say, start with some background. You would never pick up a book in the bookstore and just start reading it, right, for no reason. If nothing else, the title intrigued you, and maybe you'll look at the table of contents. Maybe you'll read a couple blurbs and say, what is this book about? If I said to you, hey, there's a new movie, it's called Unplanned, right? I doubt you would go to it unless you heard what it's about. Give me a little something, throw me a bone, give me a trailer, right? So when you're reading the Bible, you could just have a plain Bible and just start reading, but there are so many tools available, many times I've encouraged you to get a study Bible. Not all study Bibles are created equal. We sell some in the bookstore, the MacArthur Study Bible, ESB Study Bible. It's a number of different Bibles if you have questions, ask one of us pastors or elders or some of your small group leaders could guide you. But taking a study Bible, it'll give you a, a couple simple introductory background things that'll gear you for your study. So we want to start our study on Mark, and we usually try to have a title, and this one's called Committing to the Journey, or I'm sorry, Clarifying Jesus, Committing to the Journey, and I want to talk about that. But let's back up for just a moment real quickly. Remember that the Bible's telling one story. It's 66 books, but it's telling one big story because God is the great orchestrator. So the Holy Spirit is inspiring the authors. They're not just letting her get their, getting their groove of writing. God is, is, is behind this one story of creation, of the corruption that came and condemnation through Adam's sin, and of the coming of Christ for redemption and then ultimately of the consummation of the ages when God recreates the new heavens and the new earth and all those who are not part of his kingdom will perish for eternity. So with that in mind, we said that the Bible really has three sections. The Old Testament, which is preparing us for Christ. The Old Testament is ultimately designed to point to Jesus. Every verse doesn't mention Jesus, but when Jesus was on earth, it says, and he would take the scriptures and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he would say, these are the things concerning me. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, search the Bible because if you think you have eternal life, they testify of me. 
So the Old Testament pointed us to the coming of Christ. And as, as it went on, the prophets kept predicting this time when God would invade earth, that he would come to earth through a virgin. So the Old Testament predicted us for the coming of Christ. The Gospels, the four Gospels, are actually the arrival. It's that little segment in history when Jesus Christ was on earth for 33 and a half years. And then the rest of the New Testament, Acts through Revelation, are what we call the program of Christ. What's he doing now, and what's he going to do in the future? Now, most of you know that there are four Gospels. And at its simplest reading, maybe when you were in Sunday school, your teacher said to you, well, it's like four guys on four different street corners just telling their view of the accident. You know, we all saw the same thing, but I just tell you the way I saw it. I, I don't think that's probably a good way to illustrate why there are four Gospels. Because first of all, the Holy Spirit is the one who led Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to all tell a story of the life of Christ. Bear in mind that these Gospels were not even the first letters written in the New Testament. Paul and James wrote probably at least 10 years before the Gospels were written. But it was God's intention that the Holy Spirit would lead these four men to write four accounts of the life of Christ. But I want you to think of it rather than them all going, well, the way I saw it, that green car caught in front of him and the green light was there. Yeah, but from my perspective, I saw it's not so much that they're just telling what they saw. For the most part, they had access to the same material. Not all of them walked with Christ. Mark and Luke were not apostles, so they didn't actually live with Christ. John and Matthew were, were the 12. They spent that three and a half years with Christ. But Mark was close with Peter and Luke was close with Paul, and they would talk about all of the oral traditions of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. They would talk about parables. They would talk about miracles. They would talk about his sermons on the mount. They would talk about his life and his death and his resurrection. But over time, the Spirit of God led them to record four different accounts of the life of Christ. So I want you to think about this. If they all had access to the same material, then it wasn't them just going, hey, I just want to tell what I saw. Each of them were doing two things. Number one, they were writing to an audience, okay? So they had a specific audience in mind. They weren't just going, I just want to write this for everybody. And so as we study the background of these books, we can get a sense of who they were probably written to. But once they're targeting an audience, what this audience might mean or need might be different from what this audience might need. And so rather than just say, here's how I saw it, you're going to select things that are going to be helpful towards your purpose of why you're writing to them. So I want you to think as you're reading the Gospels that they are theological narratives or I'm sorry, historical narratives. So just think of it this way. They're writing the history of Jesus. They're not biographies of Jesus, right? These are terrible biographies because if they're biographies, they're way unbalanced because most of the gospels spend about a third of the time on one week in his life. That's not a biography, right? So they're writing historical narratives. They're going, I'm going to tell this story of the birth of Christ. I'm going to tell this story of the wise men. I'm going to tell this story of his baptism but they have theological purposes. In other words, well, well, why are you telling this and not that? So here's an example. When you've read the Gospel of Matthew, 
the whole first chapter is the genealogy of Jesus, right? Well, why didn't Mark include that? It's not because he's like, well, that ain't the way I saw it. He had different concerns. Matthew was writing to Jewish people to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. The Messiah had to be of the line of Abraham and David. So I'm going to put his genealogy in there. Mark says nothing about the birth of Christ, nothing about the boyhood of Christ, nothing about the 12-year-old Jesus going to the temple. He starts with adult Jesus. So what I want you to, to think about here is as we read through Mark, there's another term that I want you to get used to. Many of you have studied the life of Christ. And, and the way that you study the life of Christ is you take all four Gospels side by side and you study the life of Jesus, what's called horizontally. I'm going to look at all four accounts of the life of Jesus. And you can actually buy books called The Harmony of the Gospels. And it'll have the four stories side by side. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And it's fun to do that. For example, in Mark, he spends one or two verses on the temptation of Jesus. He doesn't tell anything about the devil going, hey, make these stones bread. But in Matthew and Luke, he tells long, long, long stuff, right? Well, a lot of people, all they do is studying the life of Christ is they study it horizontally. Then he did this, then he did this. But what happens is you need to study them vertically, meaning read through the book, right? You don't watch four movies side by side and go, ooh, what's this? You read through the book. You watch this movie. So this week, I'm going to ask you to do something, okay? I want you to read through Mark. You like the whole book? I'm like, it's 16 chapters. I would suggest, even if you're very slow, you could read it at most in a couple hours. And you're going, me sit still for a couple hours? And I'm going, please don't, right? Because I'm going to get out the film, and we're going to go, remember that? show you watched for three hours? Remember that movie? Remember that Facebook you were on for three hours? Remember that non... So don't say you can't. I can't pay attention for that long. The Bible's not a Ouija board. I was talking to somebody recently. They said, oh, I was going through something. And I get this. People do it all the time. They're like, I just open the Bible and ask God to speak to me. Don't do that. Instead, just start with verse one. Say, God, I'm going to turn the, 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 the movie on. I'm going to just read the life of Christ. Now, as we all know... If you watch a movie a second time, you go, I didn't see that. I didn't make that connection. So it's okay if you read it more than once. Okay, I'm not going to be upset. <laughs> but unlike Benjamin, who said, take out your phone and start going on your app now, put your phone away, right? <laughs> because right now, we're going to focus on Mark. Now, I want to say some introductory things, okay? Just briefly, and then we're going to just go through the first 13 verses. Just by way of background, this Mark is, is also known as John Mark. He was the son of the woman Mary that we read about in the book of Acts, who was very wealthy. She opened up her home that could hold at least 120 people who were together for prayer. He was a nephew of Barnabas, who you'll read about in the book of Acts. And as he grew up, he was asked by Paul and Barnabas to join him on a mission trip. So this young John Mark, who was probably of Roman descent, on that missions trip, we don't know why, but in Acts 13 it says, Mark deserted them. I don't know if he was afraid, if he was homesick. 
but it becomes a big blemish of Mark's character. Like, he's a loser, he's a failure, he's a disappointment, he's a dropout. And it was painful for Paul because Paul felt strongly that he needed Mark while he and Barnabas was on this trip. We learned from Galatians, he got sick during this trip. So the, the, when you come to Acts 15, it says they wanted to go on another trip, and Paul says, we're not taking Barnabas, right? And Barnabas is like, come on, Paul, give him another chance. Everybody messes up, and Paul's like, no, this is too important. We need somebody reliable and dependable. So if all we had was the book of Acts, we'd say like, wow, Paul wrote him off. No, Paul wasn't like that. Because later on, when we're reading Paul's letters, he somehow restored his relationship with John Mark. Because in the book of 2 Timothy, he says, bring John Mark. He can help. He's a very useful servant. So one thing you could think about Mark is, wow, here's a guy who isn't perfect. Maybe I can relate to that. God gives second chances. God's very compassionate. But secondly, we know from church history and even from the scriptures that Mark was very close with Peter. Um, Peter and Mark were dear friends, and according to church history, Peter discipled Mark, and Peter was the one who poured into Mark what he had learned personally from Christ. But rather than the Holy Spirit leading Peter to write the gospel according to Peter, he's like, Pete, you'll get yours. You can write a couple. You'll write first, second Peter, right? But Mark's going to write the gospel. So bear in mind, now Mark's not going, who am I going to write this to? It's most likely that Mark was writing to Roman Christians in the 60s. Now, in the late 60s, if you're reading church history, there was an emperor by the name of Nero who became very cruel to Christians. Like, he was a sick dude, and he was very, very nasty to believers. We know from history that he would burn Christians, that he would wrap them in goat skins and feed them to wild animals. And so obviously in Rome itself, if you were a Christian, you would get the STUBI award. You all know what the STUBI is? It's an acronym. Stinks to be you. Because you're in a place where there's a real chance that you're going to suffer physical harm for being a Christian. So it's most likely that Mark then is going to write to Roman Christians while he is in Rome, encouraging them that following Jesus is not easy, but it's extremely worthwhile. So with that in mind, Mark has this idea, I want to write to encourage Christians. Mark is not primarily an evangelistic letter. Like John says, his gospel is written that you might believe. I think Mark's writing to Christians who are struggling to go, I don't know if I want to tell people I'm a Christian because this is getting nasty and I'm afraid. So what we want to think about is what does Mark focus on? So I want you to look with me in verse 1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Those two terms, Christ and Son of God, to define Jesus, in my mind, frame the book of Mark. In other words, I want you to think of the book of Mark as having two main sections. The first eight chapters are about Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, okay? So what we're going to read, as, and, and as you're reading, as you read the first eight chapters, you'll see that the disciples don't really understand that Jesus is the Messiah. See, all the Jews at that time were waiting for Messiah. He's coming, he's coming. But when Jesus comes, they did not get it. 
right? In fact, as you're reading, they'll, they'll see him do a miracle in, in chapter 4, and he'll calm the sea, and they'll go, who is this guy, right? And, and, and over and over again, Jesus will like, don't you understand? Don't you get it? But finally, we come to chapter 8. And in chapter 8, Jesus turns to Peter, and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter goes, you, you are the Christ, right? And we're like, yes, Peter. Now again, Mark doesn't spend any time like Matthew does where Jesus goes, now Peter, you didn't learn this on your own and you're the rock and I'll build my church. None of that. But instead, Mark just says, first, they get it, he is the Christ. Now they're sophomores, right? They passed their freshman class, they're sophomores. Now most of you probably didn't know this, that's not something to be proud of, to be a sophomore in school, because sophos in Greek means wise, and this is true, the Greek word moron, right? So a sophomore, you could see, they know something, so they're like, hey, I, I already did a year of school, I'm a sophomore, and you're like, yeah, yeah, you are wise. The problem is you don't understand you're still the more, right? You still got, so what happens is, in chapter 8, they realize he's the Christ, he's, so they're sophomores, yes. Now Jesus is going, okay, now we have to go back to school. You have a total misunderstanding of what it means to be the Messiah because the second half of the book is then going to be, here's what it means to be the Messiah. I'm the suffering son of God. And this is huge in the second half of the book. No sooner does Peter say to Jesus, you're the Christ, that Jesus goes, that's right. Now, mark this down. The Christ is going to suffer and he's going to get killed and beaten and thrown in the grave and rise from the dead. And Mark is going to say that three times. On three different occasions, Jesus goes, I'm going to die for your sins. And it says the disciples did not understand it. This saying was hidden from them. And instead, they would just say, well, am I going to be great? Are you going to? I want to be great. And Jesus is like, please stop talking. So the second half of the book is they don't understand that being the Messiah does not mean I'm going to now set up my kingdom. See, every Jew at that time had a clear view of the Messiah. This was their view. He is going to come in on a white horse. He is going to kick the butt of every Gentile and especially these Romans who have been oppressing us. So literally on Palm Sunday, they weren't excited because Jesus was going to die for them. They thought when he passed through the gates that he was going to get off and they were going to start a rebellion and they were just going to go around slaughtering Romans and then King Jesus. And Jesus is going, guys, you don't even get it. The Messiah is going to suffer. I'm the son of God who came to give my life. And ironically, at the end of the book, it's not Peter who goes, oh, now I see it. Messiah is the suffering son of God. Of all things, at the end of the book of Mark, it says while Jesus was hanging on the cross, a Roman soldier says, as he watched Jesus die on the cross, truly this man was the son of God. So, what does that have to do with our title? Well, I've called the book Clarifying Jesus because a lot of people have ideas about Jesus that are incorrect, right? Like Jesus Christ, like Christ was his last name. Remember I told you this, a mailman's like, where in the world, where do the Christ live? Oh, they're over there by, no. So we need to clarify, and you're gonna see this. It's easy for us, right? When you're watching a movie and you see the lady on the phone, she doesn't see the creepy guy behind her coming at her and we're like, watch it, right? 
we're sitting above, away from Mark. We know who Jesus is, but Mark's telling the story. And so instead of going, these stupid disciples understand what they were wrestling with. How do I know he's the Christ? And so immediately when Jesus is introduced in Mark, the demons know who he is. They go, we know who you are. But the disciples are going, who is this? We don't know who you are. So what we're going to find here is just like back then, people need to clarify Jesus. Now, those are not just cool Ray-Bans. Those are like glasses that are clarifying something, okay? So all of you are going to have to wrestle, including me. There are some things about Jesus that make me uncomfortable. There's actually a book called The Hard Sayings of Jesus, right? Jesus is not Mr. Rogers. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Everything he said was not easy. It had some sharpness to it. Jesus could be very direct. He would say to people, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed sepulchers. You're rotten, and you're going to burn in fire. Jesus spoke about hell. There's more recorded in the Bible about hell than heaven. On the other hand, Jesus was incredibly compassionate. He would reach out and, and touch lepers. He would, he would tell repentant sinners, go and sin no more, and we can learn from Christ. Christ was firm with some people, but he was so gentle with others. He knew how to comfort the afflicted, and he knew how to afflict the comfortable. So all of us constantly need to clarify Jesus. I don't know why people wear WWJD. You better, you better have one that says WDJD. What did Jesus do? Because how in the world would I even begin to go, what would Jesus do? if I don't know what Jesus did or said. And one of the heart and souls of New Testament discipleship was helping Christians to become like Jesus. So the Bible says, let the words of Jesus dwell in you and then teach and instruct and encourage one another. So, so as we go through Jesus, right, we're going to clarify things about him. We're going to be reminded of what he did and what he said so we can be like him. But then the second thing is we're going to commit to the journey because in the gospel of Mark, there's this phrase, the way, the way, the way. It's interesting because later in the book of Acts, that was one of the early terms that they used for Christians, people of the way, right? So in verses two and three of Mark chapter one, it actually uses the phrase, the messenger will come, will prepare your way, Make ready the way. So there's a way, right? But once we get to chapter 8 and Christ is clarified as the Messiah, then we start talking about people who are on the way. Bartimaeus, his eyes are healed, and now he follows them on the way. And so the idea here is that learning about Jesus is not simply for information. Jesus very deliberately gave information that demanded an invitation in other words, it wasn't enough to simply know a lot of stuff about Jesus. The question is now, what are you going to do about it? So Jesus said, if you just hear my words, but you don't do what I say to you, you're a foolish man. And one day you'll say, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, I don't know you. You just practice iniquity. So the idea of committing to the journey is to become a, a, a forgiven Christ follower starts with a decision. Now, hopefully, many of you have made that, but I know for sure that some of you have not yet made that. 
And I'm just going to keep telling you until the Holy Spirit, I pray, opens your eyes that you're not going to heaven. I don't care if you come to this church every day. You are not going to heaven until you, until you enter into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ by repentance and faith. Now, I am not telling you that to scare believers, right? And so it's normal. Many Christians wrestle with, am I truly converted, right? It's normal for people to, yeah, I asked Jesus in my heart and I did that back then because they want to make sure. So those of you that are having doubts, you're like, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. I, I think I am. I, I don't really know. I, you know, sometimes we stand up and say, oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. But I, I don't actually remember that wonderful day. You don't have to remember the day you committed your life to Christ. You know, we sing, the hour I first believed. Well, frankly, if I ask you to raise your hand, including me, I don't remember the hour I first believed. Do you? Do you go, it was 9 o'clock on a Saturday, a regular crowd? No. You don't need to know what time it was. You just need to ask yourself, am I committed to Jesus, right? Now, think about what does that mean? You're not earning your way to heaven. I'm engaging with a man with... Um, email and he keeps writing to me and saying so you're telling me I just need to change what I believe I can't change what I believe and 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 the reality is you better change what you believe that's a willful volitional decision of the mind and heart Jesus offered an invitation repent and believe right and so if anything that I believe is contrary to what Jesus said I can change what I can believe. I can say, Jesus, I thought this, this, and this, but you said this, this, and this, so I'm going to repent, and I'm going to begin to follow you. So ask yourself, have you ever put your trust in Christ and invited Christ to be your Lord and Savior? You believe that his precious blood was shed for your sins, and, 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 and in an act of faith, by God's grace, your eyes were opened, and you embraced Christ. And you, you were willing to be forgiven and to become a follower, okay? Now, to help you in your spiritual journey, nobody goes from point A, a direct, unbroken path of spiritual growth and progress and holiness until the day they enter into glory. All of us have a spiritual diagram that's somewhat like an EKG. We have our ups and downs, okay? And what's ironic, and I hope you'll find encouraging, is as you, re you read the life of the disciples in Mark, I actually find great comfort that three and a half years walking with Jesus every day, they were pretty dumb, because that gives me hope. At the end of the entire ministry of Jesus, they're still like, huh? I don't know. What? Even after he rose from the dead, they're like, are you going to set up your kingdom now? And he's like, please stop talking because you're going to go be my witnesses. So discipleship is a journey. So make sure you are already committed to the journey, okay? The Bible says make your calling and election sure, okay? And I, and I want you to think about that. If you're not sure that you're saved, it's nothing to be embarrassed about but it's important to talk to someone about it. I know some people think, I'm the only one. I talk to people all the time. I'll even recommend a book by Matt Chandler called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, okay? You don't need to fearfully go, I asked Jesus to save me, but I better do it again. I better do it again. But if you go, oh yeah, I, I committed, when I was four years old, I raised my hand at Backyard Bible Club. Does your life 
demonstrate now that you are a Christ follower, right? And that's what the Gospel of Mark is calling us to do, to improve our journey. As I get to know Jesus better, then I reflect on, well, what does discipleship look like? What does it mean to follow Christ in the trenches? Am I being obedient to the Word of God? Am I learning to serve other people? Am I willing to suffer and confess him before men and bear the shame of his cross? So all of us are trying to figure out what does it look like, whether I'm in high school, whether I'm 80 years old, how do I act like Jesus and follow him on this journey in a world where everybody else is going the opposite way, right? It's not like it's neutral. It's not like the devil's going, let me help you there. Just jump in and I'll push you toward Christ. We're living in this world, and we should be very grateful that we live in a country where at least they're not threatening to kill us, right? Right now, if you were in Syria, read, read their article in World Magazine. In Nigeria, even, they're killing Christians at this point. All over the world, people are giving their lives for Christ. They're reading Mark very differently from us, right? But I think what Satan's doing in American culture is very different. In some cultures, he's saying, hey, look, Jesus bore the crown of thorns. And that's precious to think. The nails in his hands and, and, and the blood flowing down from that crown of thorns. And we're called to bear that crown of suffering with him, right? But in our culture, Satan's a little more clever. Hey, don't worry about a crown of thorns. But just come over here and let me choke you with thorns. See, because in American culture, it's pleasure, it's comfort. It's ease, it's sports, it's recreation, it's vacation. Jesus talked about that in Mark chapter 4. He says, look, some people receive the word of God. And he says, but the cares of this world, the desires for other things, and the thorns choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So Jesus is going to unsettle us at times and say, hey, it's not enough to go, oh yeah, I raised my hand, but am I an active follower of Christ? Am I a servant like Christ? Now, I made a grave miscalculation because some of you are thinking to yourself, didn't he say he's going to cover the first 13 verses? <laughs> he said that. And isn't it now 1027? So, See, and here's the problem here. This is going to upset the whole domino, right? I'm going to get beat for this in staff meeting because there are, other, there are other people that are planning on preaching, right? And they're already focusing on their text, and they're going, well, Tom's going to be done this part, so I'll just pick up from here. So if I'm not here for a couple weeks, <laughs> just pray for me. But at least let's look at the introductory. I want to just look at the first three verses, and then we'll close in prayer. Because you're going to run home, you're like, don't bother me, I'm going to read Mark, right? You're like, but it's basketball, what's a DVR for? Okay, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we went over that. Now, the reason he's saying the beginning is because God had been planning to send Christ for many years. But now, Mark's going to say, here's how it began. And in essence, the good news of the saving work of Christ really began with his with his introduction by John and his baptism. Not gentle Jesus when he was a baby. But then he quotes from verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, 
make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As you're learning to study the Bible, ask questions, right? Look at cross-references. You'll notice that this is a quote from Isaiah the prophet. Now, just real quick, I want to throw something out there. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Guess what? That's not in Isaiah. That's a direct quote from Malachi. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Verse 4, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's from Isaiah. Okay? You go, well, wait a minute. Mark's a lawyer then. Because he said this is from Isaiah. It was not uncommon for New Testament authors to quote more than one Old Testament allusion. And because the primary emphasis here is from the gospel uh, or from the book of Isaiah, he's going to leave this in the Isaiah category. But I want you to think about just the significance of what John's ministry was for. You see, unlike Matthew, who gave a great deal of detail about John saying to the Pharisees, who warned you to come out here? You better bring forth fruit. Unlike Luke, who gave the, the moral transformative message of John. John didn't just say repent, and they're all like, what should we do? And he goes, just repent. He had very specific, this is what it means to repent. If you have two tunics, stop being so selfish and share. And those of you who are stealing and, and you soldiers, stop taking things by force. And those of you, oh, you're allowed to say this, those of you who are complaining about how much you get paid, stop it and be content with your wages. You see, John called for moral repentance that had very practical, transformative. If he lived today, be stop being so mean to your wife. Or stop being so lazy. Or husband, stop neglecting to be a spiritual leader. Kids, stop being so disobedient to your parents. John didn't wince and go, you know, just, just you know, love Jesus. So John's message was preparatory. If he was here today, he would say, get right with the Lord. That's all he was saying. What does it mean to make his path straight? When a king came to your town, right, you made sure that you patched up the road work. If there were sticks and stones in the road, you removed them. If there were potholes in the road, metaphorically, you filled them in. If the ravine and there was a big mountain, then you smoothed it out. You made his path straight because the king is coming. Kind of like Palm Sunday, huh? Why'd they throw their shirts down? It was because this was the way that you prepared the way for the king. But that's all symbolic of saying, look, get right with the Lord. And frankly, I need to hear that. And I have a feeling that some of you do too. Though you're like, well, Pastor, I'm not having an affair. Well, just because you're not having an affair, there are times where we have to do some soul searching and say, I need to get right with the Lord. I need, to, I need to change my priorities. Oh, I haven't had time. You've had time. Sometimes we just lose our way. Sometimes we, nobody wakes up one morning close to Jesus and the next day they deny him. It's gradual, it's subtle. That's how Satan works. We stop praying, we stop reading our Bible. It's those little things. We begin to allow certain little sins and we think, well, they're no big deal. And so John is inviting us and this is what I love about Jesus. He doesn't bring us back with a beat down. He welcomes us back. He welcomes us back. The Bible says a contrite heart he will never despise. And so as we begin the Gospel of Mark, it might be worthwhile to say, Jesus, as I read this book, 
clarify to me who you are and then teach me what it means to commit more deeply to this journey. There's a reason why Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. There's a reason for that. People aren't flocking to follow Jesus. But in his grace, he has opened our eyes. Like the disciples, he has tenderly brought us to himself, not because of anything we did, but because he set his love for us. He purchased us. And now he says, hey, listen, for that little dash between the dates, will you learn how to follow me? What do you mean dash between the dates? One of these days we're going to be pushing up daisies with a big stone on top of us. And that little stone's going to have two years and a little dash in between. And that little dash is called our life, right? And at the end of our life, we're going to have to go, did I follow Jesus? And could I have followed him better? Not because I'm scared of him, but because he picked up that cross and he carried it up a hill and he gave himself for me. And he's calling us as a church to, to, to walk with him more deeply. And that's messy. And that involves sacrifice. That involves pain. That involves fears and doubts. But it's so worth it. It's so awesome. And so I hope that you will all be moved with me and pray with me that as a church, we will fall more in love with Christ, more passionate about him. I've had several people say, oh, I'm trying to get up the courage to get baptized. Well, hopefully Mark will inspire you to get up the courage to get baptized, right? And get up the courage to talk to somebody about Christ and get up the courage to get right with God and say, I'm going to stop doing that and I'm going to change the way I'm going to do this. Isn't that exciting? So let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. And we so need him and we so long for you to open our eyes, the eyes of our heart, that we might know him better that we might think deeply about all that he has done for us, all of the riches that we have because we're your children. Jesus, thank you so much that you began a good work in us. You'll never forsake us. You're so full of mercy. Oh, Lord, thank you that like blind Bartimaeus, you open our eyes so we could follow you on the way. Please forgive all of us as a corporate church and as American Christians for how easily we're choked by the cares of this world. May the gospel of Mark be powerfully used by you in all of our lives. And may those who are not yet Christians, may you open their eyes and call them to yourself, Lord. And those who are Christians, may you comfort them if they're fearful and doubting. And we pray this in Jesus' name, for his glory, amen. Have a wonderful day.